so this past week, uh, or, or maybe it was a week before, um, anyway, last two weeks, my, my daughter, who's two years old, um, stays home with, with my wife. She doesn't have a job yet, so she's home with my wife all day. Uh, my two-year-old doesn't yet have a job. That was a joke. Uh, you missed it. It's fine. Um, but she's at home with, with my wife, and, uh, and she loves to do all kinds of crazy things. My wife is always there with her. And, um, and I get this call from, from Jess saying that, that Stella just fell. And I'm like, okay. She's like, yeah, but she fell off the top bunk. And uh, so she had fallen off the top bunk. Jess like, was right there. And uh, that's how creative two-year-olds can be. And so she falls, falls on her bum, comes forward, smashes her face on the bar on the bottom bunk. And Jess said, like, there's just blood everywhere, right? All over Stella's face, can't stop it coming out of the mouth, all over my wife. And she's like, what do I do? I'm like, well, go to the hospital. We just moved. We're literally right next to the hospital. It's a two-minute walk, very convenient uh, for this situation. But in that moment, when she calls me and says, there's blood everywhere, here's what I didn't say. Oh, good, at least Stella has blood inside of her, Right? When you see someone that gets in a major accident or something's happening and there's blood, you're not like, hey, buddy, at least you have blood. Like, that's good. It means you're alive. It's like, have enough for long. Like, it's going out, right? It's not what you say in those moments. It's like, how do we stop it? You know, you're like shoving gauze, putting whatever you can to make it stop because we know that that life is being poured out in front of us. Now, with Stella's incident, we weren't worried about like her bleeding out at the mouth necessarily. But in some cases, we are. We, we need to stop the, the blood. Otherwise, the life will go out. The book of Leviticus is a book in the Old Testament, third book in to the Bible. And here's what Leviticus 17, 11, uh, says. Let me find this here. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is a blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood equals life. Blood equals life. God says it. We know it instinctively. We want to stop the blood so that life can keep going on. Uh, If you were to read through the Bible, even the book of Leviticus in its entirety, you would find that reading the Bible sometimes feels like a falling off the top bunk incident. There's just blood everywhere. There's blood all over the Bible. It's like you can't stop it. You're like, okay, good. At least the sacrifices are done now. You turn to the next book, it's like more blood. It's, it's literally everywhere, all over the Bible. It feels like it's, it's more of an 18-plus gore show at times because there are so many animals that are being brought in to be slaughtered. There's so many sacrifices and offerings that are being made. It just feels like there's too much blood. So I've talked to many people. Okay, I've been following Jesus since about 2003, 2004, somewhere in there. And I meet a lot of people that say, I like Jesus, but what's the deal with all the blood? I don't know about the blood. I remember I was a brand new Christian. Uh, my undergrad degree is in social work. I went to my social work class, and uh, my professor's name was Barbara. I have many stories to share with you about Barbara. She got to experience all my newness of being a follower of Jesus in, in classes. But uh, uh, it's a different story for a different sermon. But I remember telling her, oh, I'm going to see a movie tonight. She's like, what movie? I said, The Passion of the Christ. She's like, why would anyone go and see that movie? She's like, it's too violent. 
I said, yeah, but do you know what? Do you know why it's violent? Do you know why there's blood? And she, you know, we didn't get into that. But that's the, that's the idea is I like Jesus. I like the idea of like shepherd Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, baby Jesus and the golden fleece diaper. I like that Jesus. But I don't like the violence and the blood. And here's what's going to happen today. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews, the text that uh, Debbie just read for us. And the text in the Bible deals with two covenants. And around those two covenants is a lot of blood. Tons of blood. So we're going to get into the blood this morning. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to uh, Jewish Christians. So the Jews have been waiting for a Messiah to come and rescue them and change them. And, um, and today, there's still Jews that don't believe that the Messiah has come. They're looking for the Messiah to come. But... Jews at that time, many of them became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. And so this book of Hebrews is being written to these Jewish Christians. Jewish by culture, Jewish by upbringing, Jewish religion, but that they see Jesus as their Messiah. So they would be Jewish Christians. And the author who we don't know, we know many of the authors of of the different books of the Bible, but Hebrews we're just not sure of. Um, he's writing the text knowing that the people he's writing to understand the Old Testament, understand that that they know and have a good grasp on the Old Testament, which is before Jesus and deals with sacrificial systems and the law, which is comprised of about 613 laws. We can't make that assumption. I can't make that assumption this morning that you showed up here And that you're like, yeah, I know all 613 of the laws. I know why the blood is there. I know the covenants. So we're actually going to get into that a little bit so that we can understand what's going on in the text. So our whole thing this morning is going to be around two covenants, two binding agreements. The first and the new or the second. But before we get into that, I want to go pre-first covenant. All right? Pre-first covenant. So here it is. We believe that God makes... The beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God created. We believe that that God has no beginning, has no end. He is eternal, always existing. And that out of who he is, he creates. He didn't create because he was lonely or bored, needed followers on his media, social media account. He just creates out of the abundance of who he is. He is love, so he creates those that he can love and, and can love him Back, though he's already been participating in this love for all of eternity. So we believe that God makes. And that God makes us with blood. God makes living creatures with blood. This wasn't a scientific community uh, that was going on in the book of Genesis. So when God says in Genesis chapter 9 that life is in the blood, that's like a scientific revelation. If you take out all the blood, they will die. Now, probably by experience, they knew that. But I don't know if they they caught the cause and effects. But life is in the blood. and, And God made blood for the inside. God made blood for the inside to stay on the inside. In fact, God doesn't want blood. Many of us think, man, God is this bloodthirsty God, always demanding more blood. He's never satisfied. He loves the the horror and the gore films, and and he loves it so much that he makes his people participate in that. That's often what we think, but that's just not the reality. Uh, Hebrews 10, 
verses 5 and 6 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. You catch that? God, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. God's not bloodthirsty. God's not looking for, for more blood. In fact, the reason why blood needs to be shed or spilled at all is because of us. We don't have time to get into all of this this morning. But God made us without sin. God made humanity without sin. God made us to, to submit to him as, as the provider and protector of our life. He made us to enjoy him and to enjoy all of his creation. And yet it's, it's us that rejected that. We said, no, we don't, we don't want your way of living. We want our way of living. We became the bloodthirsty ones. We set out to kill God so that we could be gods, so that we could be objects of worship, so that we could be the center of attention, so that we could be seen by creation as preeminent to other forms of creation. I mean, caste systems, right? That's supremacy. I'm in this caste. You're in this caste. I'm over you. You're above me. I am a human just like you, but I'm supreme to you. That's, that's stuff that happened in the garden at the very beginning. It still exists. Socioeconomic classes, right? We're still doing this stuff. We rejected the creator at the beginning, and we became stained with sin. Stained not just like you can um, magic eraser it out. But, but stained in the heart level. This isn't something you can scrub off your skin. This is deep. And there's no way that we can remove the stain on our own. And because of sin now, we need the death of something else for us. Now you say, I don't, I don't like that idea. But you didn't set out the terms and conditions. Because it doesn't seem like God likes that idea either. You have not desired burnt offerings and sacrifices. Those aren't God's deepest desires. But his deepest desire is to receive glory, to be seen for who he is, and to have his people enjoy him and him enjoy his people. And so however that has to happen, God is willing to do whatever it takes for that to take place. That we need the death of something else to cover our sin, to cover our stain. The book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, I, I think it should be up there. Verse 3, 21 uh, says this. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, skins and, and clothed them. So after their rebellion, after their sin, God didn't give up on them. God said, I'm going to pursue you, but in order for me to keep pursuing you, you're going to have to wear something because you're now unholy. You're going to have to be covered the way that I'm saying you need to be covered. And so the, the first death that we read about in Genesis takes place. How do you get skins? You kill something for it. So God goes into his creation, kills something, removes the skins so that they can be placed on his people. It took the death of something else so that we as humanity could be covered. This idea of substitute, it's profoundly moving. 
It's the tearjerker moments in, in movies. I, I think it's a rom No, it's not a comedy, I guess. It's a rom adventure. I don't know. Armageddon. Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, right? And, and they're in this spaceship thing. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, great. Like three of you do. Well, it's a great illustration. But uh, Bruce Willis uh, and ben, ben Affleck. Ben Affleck is going to become like the son-in-law of Bruce Willis. He wants to marry Bruce Willis's daughter. The movie, they're up on this meteor that's going to destroy you know, planet Earth. And uh, Ben Affleck is supposed to stay outside the ship. And if he does that, he's going to die, and Bruce Willis will go back to be with his daughter. But in a great act of substitution, Bruce Willis forces Ben Affleck back onto the ship, sends it off, and then Bruce Willis stays and destroys the meteor. And it's a touching moment, despite the cheesiness of all the things that were going on around it. But it's a touching moment because someone is willing to basically take a bullet or take a meteor, right, for someone else. We see this in the movies, but, but it happens in real life. It's our desire. It's our desire. Um, on a very, very serious note, there's a little girl, oh, I was 13, named Jamie Cross, I believe, or Kloss, Jamie Kloss. Uh, 13, uh, her parents uh, were, this is in Minnesota, I believe, uh, were murdered this week, and uh, she was taken, presumably, and they don't know where she is, and so, like, all of the U.S. is on high uh, lookout for, for this little girl. And her cousin, uh, Sierra, wrote this. I wish we could trade places just to get you home and out of harm's way. I wish we could trade places just to get you home and get you out of harm's way. That's touching. Because this is real. This isn't a movie. This is really happening right now. That at least in words... She's saying, I want to be your substitute so that you don't need to experience what's going on around you. See, here's, here's the story of, of the Bible around the substitute. Because we sin, because we rebel against God, we should have to die. You should have to die. Adam and Eve at the beginning, instead of God covering them and making a promise to them, he could have just killed them. He could have said, I'm holy, you're not any longer, you can't be in my presence, I'm going to slaughter you now, and I'm going to go ahead and enjoy my creation till it runs out. But he didn't. Because of sin, you and I should die. But here's the thing. If you die for yourself, you can't save yourself. Your blood is not holy enough to atone or pay for your sins. And you can't pay for anyone else's. Some of you try and be a savior to other people. And you can't be. You can't be. You weren't made to be a savior of other people either. But here's the thing. It's encouraging, right? You should die. You can't save yourself. And every sin must be forgiven by blood. Every sin is so weighty. That something has to die for it. Uh, one of my kids and I, we were processing through this week um, something that they did. And they didn't think it was a big deal. And so, like, maybe it was a bad parenting moment. I don't know. I don't think so. I think it was good. But we talked about the weight of sin. And I said, even if that one thing was done, for you to be forgiven, Jesus would have to come and go to the cross. And that just broke my child. Because they didn't see 
the weight of what they did. It was like, yeah, but like, no big deal. No one got hurt by it. And so in that moment, we compared what needed to take place for that one lie to be covered. And we're just flippant with it, right? Like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. But that one act of unholiness in the garden with Adam and Eve, that one lie, that one taking a little bit more than you were supposed to take, that, that one look, that one whatever, was, was so unholy in the sight of a perfect and holy God that someone had to die for it. Sin is serious. Don't play with sin. Blood is needed because of our rebellion. But how does blood forgive? Right? I've donated blood. I've seen big bags of blood. Uh, how does that blood actually forgive for what's taken place? And what blood forgives? Because it can't just be any blood. You can't walk in here with, like, I went to donate blood this week, but when no one was looking, I grabbed some blood out of the bucket because Dwight said that blood needed to forgive me, so I'm bringing my blood to Church 21 gathering. Here you go, Dwight. I don't want any blood in that little black box, right? Do not give your vials of blood. We're not into that here at all. But how does blood forgive? Well, it must be done the right way. It must be done the way that God wants. It must be on his terms and with his conditions. So we did the pre-first covenant. Now we're going to move into the first covenant. We're going to actually get into the text. The first covenant was given to Moses. Many of you, if you don't know much about the Bible, know about Moses. You've seen him portrayed horribly and wrong in many films. Right? Just inaccurate. Like, it's right here. Just read the text. Like, put the lines out. You don't need to make things up. This is epic enough. Crazy stories going on. But the first covenant was given to Moses. Moses brings the people of God out of Egypt into redemption, freedom, right? Out of slavery, emancipation, amazing Bob Marley type song stuff that takes place. Right? And he brings them out into this place called the wilderness. And to this mountain called Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. The mountain shakes. Moses is meeting with God. God gives him this first covenant that he brings back down the mountain to the people. And this is God's way. This is going to be God's way that, that people, free people now interact and worship God. You were made to worship. You are worshiping something right now. You are worshipers. But who or what do you worship? So worship of God, God is putting out, again, the terms and conditions of this is how interacting with me is going to work. And I'm generous. I'm glad. I'm a father. I, I want to be for you. But here's how it's going to go down. And so God's way involves a right place, a proper place. We see this in, in Hebrews 9, 1 through 5, but I'm just going to read Hebrews 9, 5 because it made me laugh out loud, literally, LOL, as I was reading this text uh, the first time preparing for this. So he goes in describing like this place, and then he says in verse 5, uh, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of, things, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He's like, all right, for later, like let's get into the, to the meat of this. I don't want to go on geeking out about what's going on inside of this place. But basically the right place for blood to happen was broken up into two places. The first, okay, inside of this, this tabernacle, in English that's an okay word to say, all right? 
It's happening inside this tabernacle where God would meet with his people. But he wouldn't meet with everyone. He would meet with a few people on behalf of everyone called the priests. And the tabernacle was broken up into two areas. The first area, priests could go in to do their their rituals, to do their duties. But the second place, the inner place, only the high priest could go in once a year. And as the high priest was going in, he had to bring something very specific. And so this is what we get into next. Hebrews 9, 6 through 10. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the first for all priests, second high priest goes once a year. He had to bring in the blood of specific animals for his own sin. Catch this, catch this, that the priest needed a sacrifice for himself. The priest was not perfect. The priest sinned still. There's no uh, status of a pastor or a music leader or a greeter or like there's no status that you arrive at where all of a sudden you no longer sin. If someone's told you that, they're lying. And we always are going to struggle with this. And so these high, this high priest who would go in had to bring blood for himself and blood for all of the people to sacrifice for our sin. But here's the thing. Here's the huge problem, that though this was happening year after year, time after time, the blood of of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. Do you get that? God says, I want for you to offer sacrifices in this way, but then he says, in the end, your animal's blood is not going to save you. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, says this. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, this is like a duh. You know, like if you could be made perfect by the blood of animals, why, why are we still sacrificing? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Okay, here's the big question. Then why did you require it, God? If the blood of animals is not going to take away the sins, why are you constantly having me kill Bobby, the lamb, and Ferdinand, right? Like, why am I constantly putting these these animals that I'm growing up with to death? Why? This is costly. This is weighty. Why would you require it if these couldn't take away sin? Two things. 
Number one, by showing up with your offering and with your sacrifice, it's demonstrating trust and faith. It's demonstrating trust and faith. Because I mean, if we pull this way back from like the religious context and, and you know, you would say, Dwight, how could I, how could I make all these things right with you? I'm like, well, I mean, just drop off some, some blood bull and some, some goat urine or whatever. Like just drop it off at my house and, and we'll call it good. It's a bit absurd. It's a bit absurd. So there, there takes some, some trust and faith because there's not like a, oh yeah, I completely see how this all makes sense. You, we, we have to submit to the layout that God has of how we're actually going to be rescued from our sin. Because our sin is only going to bring us death. Not just in this life, but eternally. That if you don't turn from your sin, you will not be saved. And you will experience an eternity away from God. The one you are actually made for. That's weighty. That's really weighty. So why did God require blood? So that we can demonstrate our trust and faith that though we don't understand, we believe in the way that you have made for us to be rescued. We believe in what you have said over what we think. We're submitting to your idea. Because you could say, you know what, God? I actually think it would make way more sense if I just sent money to the poor. Let's, let's forget the bull. How about I send the bull to them so that they can eat? Wouldn't that make more sense instead of sacrificing it? Wouldn't it make more sense if instead of coming here for this, for this gathering or this service, how about I go volunteer my time with, with those who are sick and needy? Doesn't that make more sense, God? So we're submitting our ideas of how we're going to be rescued to him. By bringing blood, it demonstrates trust and faith. It shows that we want him. It shows we want him. It's costly. So showing above the security that livestock could bring me, above my ideas of how I'm going to rescue myself, because we all have ideas of how to rescue ourselves. Above these, I'm submitting to you as the rescuer. I'm submitting to you as the author and finisher of my salvation, my rescue. The second reason I think that God required blood was to prepare for the perfect sacrifice that was going to come. To prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah who is going to come and be the perfect sacrifice. To bring that second covenant. So under the first covenant... It was law. It was the blood that engaged us with God. Now, under the second covenant, there's still blood, but it looks much different. Jesus comes about 2,000 years ago. Jesus came as the mediator of a new covenant. You see, the law was, was the mediator between us and God. If you fulfill this law, you can be my people. You say, I can't fulfill the law. Then it takes a sacrifice. It takes an offering to make you right. And so we trust what God has has set in place. Now Jesus comes and he's now the mediator, the law. People were really confused in Jesus's day. They were saying, oh, so you came to to be above the law. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm all about the law. We believe that Jesus was God, is God. So the law actually comes from Jesus. 
So Jesus didn't come to say, ah, no, version 2.0 is here. Jesus said, no, I didn't come to remove the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to do what no one else has ever been able to do. Because every one of us, you put out a law. How many of you are killing it following Quebec's laws? Yeah, which one of you liars are in the room, right? <laughs> right, like little things. And you're like, that's so silly. But you're not the one who wrote that. So we actually have to get behind it. I do weddings, right? I, I'm an officiant at weddings. And I have to read some of the silliest things you'll ever hear at a wedding. And I try and make fun of it and, and make humor while still being reverent so I don't get it revoked. Um, but like I have to submit to that. And if I just said, ah, it doesn't matter, then actually the government can say, well, all of the weddings that you've done are no longer valid. Right? So those of you that I have been the officiant, be thankful that, that I did that thing. But there's a mediator, a new mediator. Not the law, but a person. In Hebrews 10, verse 9, it says this. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He's, he's the new mediator that's coming. He came to fulfill the law, but how's he going to fulfill the law? Well, we talked about the tabernacle, and we talked about the priest, and we talked about the sacrifice. All three of those things are needed for us to be able to, to worship God and, and be involved in the people of God. Well, Jesus actually comes to fulfill those three things. We see this in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that, that's a tabernacle, the tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, so Jesus comes as the high priest and as the tabernacle. In John chapter 1, another book in the New Testament, the biography of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, told by a friend named John. John, John says that, that God took on flesh. God took on flesh and he dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. That you would go to the tent to meet with God as the priest. But Jesus now is the high priest dwelling in human flesh in our midst. He is God in flesh. But he also comes as a sacrifice. In Hebrews 9 verse 12. It says he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. But by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. So the priest would have to come in, making sure that he slaughtered the animals and he, he brings in the bowl to the table and offers it to the Lord. But Jesus walks in himself. Jesus comes in being who he is. It wasn't on the basis of someone else's blood that he could enter in. He can enter into the holy place because of who he is. He is the tabernacle. He is the great high priest. And he is the sacrifice who's come to do what no other sacrifice can do. His cousin, John the baptizer, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He recognizes Jesus not as his cousin, but as the one who's come to lay down his life for the world and for the sins of the world. And the sacrifice that Jesus makes is a one-time 
sacrifice. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says, but when Christ, when Jesus had offered for all time, hear this, when Jesus offered for all time, all time past, all time present, all time future, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sits down at the right hand of God. Jesus, as he went to the cross, the same way that the calves and goats were, were killed and their blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus, one time, secured all the sins of the past that people were looking forward to one day will be forgiven. That happened when Jesus came. And now we look back at the cross, at that one event where Jesus became the sins of all of the people, intentional and unintentional sin. He became that on the cross and his blood has been offered for you and for me, for all of your sin, not just part of it, not a little bit, not the really big ones or the little ones, all of it for all time. It's done. You can't add to his sacrifice. In fact, if you try and add to it, you actually take away from it. This is one of those crazy cuckoo things in church history. You read, how did we ever set up the confessional? How? Like, this is nuts that Jesus dies on the cross, pays for all the sin, and then you go into a little box, you sit down, you say things, and then you talk about a football play to get yourself forgiveness. I know you don't understand football. Uh, It's a Hail Mary, Right At the end of a football game, you throw the ball really long. It's called a Hail Mary, okay? But like you, you pray these prayers, and that's like somehow adding to the work of Jesus, or it's meriting the work of Jesus, or the idea of purgatory, that Jesus died on the cross, but there are some sins that, man, that death couldn't really pay for you. So by you going into a little hot box for a little while, you know, after a certain amount of times, God's like, all right, time's up, come on out, baked enough, like bring it on into heaven. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. If we're going to make claims, they need to come from the Bible. Don't make up your ideas about what you want to be true and then find Bible verses to support that. Er, Not the way that God works. You submit to him all of the things that you you don't even like. Like, I I don't know if I like this. It still makes me feel icky, but all right, I'm submitting to this because I want you more than I want that idea to hold on to. That Jesus' death, you can't add to it, you can't take away from it. It's a better redemption than the one that Moses brought his people into. This is a redemption that's eternal. That you and I long for security, we long for safety, we long for approval, we long for belonging. This is what Jesus offers to you now. William Cooper was a hymn writer. Um, He experienced what we would uh, consider lots of mental health issues. He tried to commit suicide many times. um, But in in moments, uh, in his words, moments of sanity, the gospel made beautiful sense. The good news of Jesus made beautiful sense. And and look look at this lyric. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It's Jesus, God with us drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And then another verse says, ever since by faith I saw the stream, 
Thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Despite the struggles that William Cooper went through, he clung to the blood of Jesus. He clung to the reality that all of my sins, all of my weirdness, all of my strangeness was forgiven by Jesus and nothing can remove me from that. So now, now, Jesus, Jesus has risen from the grave. Jesus didn't stay dead after being, he put himself on the cross. Jesus came for that. Jesus could have removed himself, but Jesus intentionally went to the cross so that we could be forgiven. He was put in a tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. This is our big celebration, right? That Jesus is alive and active and moving, and he's in the presence of God right now on your behalf. Maybe you feel God doesn't really care about me. God doesn't love me. God's not for me. How can I really know? Well, right now on your behalf in front of God is Jesus, and he's pleading for you. He's praying for you. You can't get a higher person up to take notice of you. Right now, Jesus is doing that in your place. How do I know that? Well, the Bible says that. Hebrews 9, 24 says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Man, this is good news. This is good news for us. That Christ died for us. He's pleading for us. He wants what's best for us. He wants, you think you have the best plan for your life set out. Right? We all have this ideal place we'd like for life to go. But Jesus has what's, what's best. And many of the things that Jesus is going to bring you through to get there, you wouldn't have chosen. I wouldn't have chosen. But he brings you through those things so that you end up looking more like him, not the idealized version of you that you want to be. I want more Jesus, not better Dwight. Montreal needs Jesus, not Dwight. And it needs more Jesus, not you. So Jesus is taking his people and making us more and more like him. And here are a few promises. We'll end with, with these. Hebrews 10, 17 says this. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There's one day, there's one day coming where all of the things that we've done wrong, aren't you haunted by the things that you do wrong? I am. There are things in my past that I'm haunted by. I don't want those things to ever show up again. I, I hate some of the things that I continue to do, not by choice, but they just come out. I, I, I loathe that. And and in a not-so-holy moment, I say, God, how could you ever accept me when I'm, I'm like this and I do these things? How could you ever love me? And this verse, I will remember your sins no more. I'm, I'm removing those. Jesus paid for those. Those are done. Those are gone. You're my son. I love you. I need that. If I need that, I'm assuming you need that. You need to hear this, that God is going to remember your sins no more. We're not going to be in year 32,410 in eternity. And God's like, hey, remember that time you took my name in vain? Well, why didn't you bring that up at the beginning, Lord? Like, why are we waiting into the 32nd millennia or whatever? Remember your sins no more. 
forgiven, child of me, loved. Not because of what you can do, but because of what I have done. And Jesus is coming again. In Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, this is why blood is so important. Jesus is coming again. He's offered his blood for you. says this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So when Jesus returns, we don't know when. He's going to return to do two things, to save his people and to judge his enemies. And the judgment isn't going to be, hey God, like, look at all this time I volunteered to people, look at all these nice things that I did, look at the the way that I cared for my neighbors and did this stuff. It's going to be, what did you do with my blood? Did, Did you receive my blood on your behalf? Or did you reject it and you try and work out your own salvation, your own rescue plan? What did you do with my blood? That's what it all comes down to. Eternal life is in the blood of Jesus. Do you receive it or do you reject it? One day every knee by faith or by force will bend to Jesus. And those who bend by force, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Not everyone is going to be saved. It's not in the Bible. But you can be. You can say, I need that blood. I don't understand why Jesus had to die for that. I don't understand the blood, like why couldn't it have been done differently? But I submit to, I need your blood, Jesus. I need you to forgive me. I need that fountain that William Cooper was talking about. I need that. And you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. And then Jesus is your Lord and he only wants what's best for you. Like all the, all the gurus in the world, Tony Robbins, that, that's his name, right? Big Big dude swears a lot, yells at people, and somehow they cry. And they're like, you're amazing. And uh, Ultimately, like, if he doesn't get any money, does he continue doing what he does? Probably not. But Jesus doesn't come for the money. Jesus doesn't come for what you can bring to him. He comes out of love for you. It's not to get you in a club. It's to redeem you for all of eternity. So how do we apply this? How do we apply teaching on blood? How do we apply blood? Uh, when I, I, I've been coming to Montreal uh, since 2004. Uh, I spent summers here from 2006 to 2008 to prepare to move here to, to plant churches and understand the city and all that. I met a guy named Tony. Uh, Tony has a, a rare disease that every two weeks he needs a complete blood transfusion. So for a week out of every two weeks, Tony's like laid out, like can't do anything. But for that other week, he's doing lots of stuff, trying to get in like as much life as he can for that week before he has to go and get this massive blood transfusion done again. But imagine this. I was thinking about Tony this week. Imagine that he shows up for the blood transfusion. They say, hey, Tony, so glad to see you here. Uh, You know, you're all ready. You know, sit down in the chair. He's like, oh, I'm going to sit down. But... um, but I, I'm refusing the transfusion this week. I'm not going to take the transfusion. 
Now we can imagine like you're, you know, you create your destiny or whatever. Create, create an adventure. So let's do that with Tony, all right? Tony, why? Why aren't you going to take the blood? The blood is going to actually uh, make you whole again. It's, it's going to be temporarily, but, but it's going to make you okay. If you don't do this, what's going to happen? I'm going to die. So Tony, why? Well, you know what I've been thinking? I read some things on the internet. I actually don't believe that my problem is that bad. I went to university, sat through some one-on-one classes. Uh, I now believe that, that my disease is not that bad. And, and in fact, I don't think there's a problem at all. I think you're making it up. I think it's a conspiracy theory. Because my blood, there's actually something good in it. And you want to take it out of me and give me bad blood so I have to come back. And I don't think it's a problem because I can't see the problem. If I could see the problem in my blood, then maybe I'd believe So therefore, I'm refusing the blood because I can't see it. I feel good sometimes. So I'm going to choose to believe my feelings in this moment than submit to what you're saying is true. Or Tony, why? Why won't you take the blood transfusion? Well, I've been thinking I'm pretty handy. Um, You know, I put together some cabinets this week and I'm thinking I can probably fix myself. I'm thinking I can fix the problem of what's going on inside of me. I, I've been going to a church gathering or a mosque or a temple, or wherever, right? And, and, and I'm thinking that I can just do this myself. I'm going to get my religion on hard. I'm going to give some money. I'm going to do some things and, and I'm going to fix this, this problem. Or I read a book and I'm ready to self-help myself into health. I don't need any help. You're going to die. Or maybe, Tony, why, why don't you need this? Well, I'm not worried about death. Nobody can really know what happens after death. That's where I would say, well, well, Tony, there is someone who lived, who died, who rose again, and he tells us about what happens after death in this life. And he says that what happens in that life can actually be applied now, and we can enjoy some of those benefits now, that there is someone who knows what happens after death because he's been there and he's come back to tell us about it. And it's not the cute little movie about a boy who went to heaven. It's Jesus. Tony, why? Why don't you want this? Well, because I'm going to keep looking for more treatments. I don't think blood transfusion is the way we're going to go. I'm going to try putting some water in the IV, Kool-Aid, you know, looks like blood. I'm going to put some Kool-Aid in there. I heard some essential oils people, if you put lavender oil or peppermint oil on, like you'll for sure be fine of anything, right? See, it's the Tylenol of the day. I'll be fine. I'm going to keep looking for more treatments. Tony, you're going to die. Despite good intentions, Tony would die, right? Because he would, he would spend his life disappointing his blood. His blood was sick and needed new blood. And this is what we do. We spend our entire lives disappointing our soul. Our soul is longing to be fulfilled. Our soul is longing to have Jesus be the one to fulfill that. And yet we go through life disappointing our soul, thinking that we can be the ones to find what we need on our own. So in ending this, we're, we're, all, we're all like Tony. We're all like Tony. Some of you are here and you need the blood of Jesus for the first time. You need to be forgiven for the first time. Take it. What keeps you from doing that? What is it that stops you from from receiving something, saying, if this is really going to change me, then I want it. What keeps you from doing it?
Then for some of you, you've taken that blood. You've taken that blood. And you need to be reminded constantly that you are clean and that you're being made clean. Because some of you have taken Jesus' sacrifice for you and now you're trying to just be a good boy or girl. You're just an adult doing it. And Jesus says, you, you still can't be a good boy or girl without me. It's, it's my blood. It's my sacrifice. It's my spirit now dwelling in you that's going to change you to be like me. You weren't saved so that you could do the rest of the work. You were saved in submission so that God could keep doing the work. You see, we, we come to the Bible thinking God's the bloodthirsty one, but it's not God who's the bloodthirsty one. We are. We're willing to use anyone or anything that can save us. But it can't. But God is the blood donor who's given his blood so that we could be made whole, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed. We need his blood. He gave his blood gladly. There's no other bull or goat that's needed. Jesus ended the sacrificial system. It's over. Now he wants you to enjoy him and to experience real life. And who else could do that? Who else can do that? Who else would do that? There's no one. Your life, no matter where you are, you're looking for someone's blood to save you. And Jesus has done it. Let me pray for us. God, some of us are here. We don't, we've rejected you for a long time. I ask that today would be the day that you awaken us to who you are and what you've done, that, that we would see the blood as being for us, that we would submit our lives to you gladly. Some of us have, have submitted our, our lives, but now we're trying to work really hard and think that you are so disappointed with us that you don't love us, you couldn't love us because of certain things that we've done. And the reality is you, you do. And you're pursuing us for holiness. You're not going to leave us the way that we are. You're going to keep changing us until we are like you, Jesus. So thank you for that work. If anyone's here this morning, Lord, you know them. You know that, that they, they don't yet know you. Would you speak to them? Would they submit their hearts to you and say, I need your blood. I need you to forgive me. And I need you to lead me. Thank you, Jesus, that you have... you. You are the victor over death. You are the victor over hell. You are the victor over our sin. You did all that for us. Thank you that you are the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. We need you. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.